as we gathered with those friends, were continually encouraging one another in ministry. And so knowing that one of those friends was advancing through Proverbs, passage by passage, sometimes verse by verse, I asked him where he would be the following Sunday. And he shared, and then we had another friend there. He's been doing something different, and we asked which book he would be in because he's been doing an overview of each book every week. And then it was my turn, and they came to me and said, and what word will you be in this week in Colossians, Robert? (laughs) (laughs) Much like you, we all laughed. (laughs) Truly, though, I'm, I'm grateful for them because we keep one another accountable, encourage one another, and sharpen one another. But last week, I almost came into the pulpit and made a promise that I was going to finish this text that we've been in. I can tell you that won't happen. (laughs) Actually, that's not a bad thing, because as I look to the upcoming weeks, I think it organizes and sets us up for something very special, and I'm looking forward to that if things go as I have planned. But there's more than that. Um, I spent my flight on Sunday afternoon thinking and praying through this text. And my examination led me down some ways that I really wasn't expecting, in ways that confronted my own heart. And so this morning I am challenged by the example that we will have from Epaphras in our text and the work of God's grace and truth in his life. I find the exhortations from his life to be both relevant and practical to my own life. And so my hope My ask of you is that you would join me this morning with an open heart, that we may not see just God's work in one man's life, but that we might see his work in our life. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians for the continuation of the message, the power from him living in the power of the gospel. Um, And as always, I want to invite those who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will read Colossians chapter 1, beginning beginning in verse 3 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. The most important question you will ever answer is not who are you. It is who you are. Who are you in Christ? You, the one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, of our Lord, who are you in Christ? What do you know about Christ? What do you believe about Christ? And what do you do for Christ? In the midst of oppression and persecution, Is what you believe about Christ sufficient enough to cause you to continue declaring his name publicly as a follower of Christ? Are you willing to adopt the identity of Christ at the sacrifice of your own? Are you willing to give your life 
for the one who gave his life. The term Christian literally means little Christ, as in one who is like Christ. Therefore, when we identify ourselves as Christian, we are telling people exactly who we are. To say I am a Christian is to tell the world I am insignificant. I do not care if you know me, but I do care if you know my Christ. To say I am Christian is to tell the world I am helpless. I cannot conquer this world, but I must rely on the one who conquered the grave. To say I am a Christian is to tell the world I am unsteady. I must depend upon the one who is dependable. To be a follower of Christ, then, means that when the world asks, who are you? We don't tell them who we are. We tell them who Christ is. A Christian is one who has stripped himself or herself of his identity and purpose, setting aside who we think we are, who we think we want to be, so that we may instead become who Christ wants us to be. This is the effect of God's truth in our lives. It causes us to change who we are. It compels us to give up all that is in our lives so that we may live a life for Christ. It conveys the power of God's word and work. As we have advanced through this particular section of Colossians, I've called upon you to see the effect of the gospel, to see its power, to notice how it powerfully works within the world. It is an incredible sight to behold when the truth of God is at work. We noted first that the gospel has the power to impart. It is by this that the world is given hope. The gospel imparts hope into the world. And that hope is relevant because it comes from truth. The hope imparted by God's grace is not simply a wish for something to happen. It's a certainty that God will complete his promises. Second, we talked about the text revealing that the gospel has the power to impact. This same truth that is imparted into the world is impacting the world. It's bearing fruit, as verse 6 says, in the entire world. And now I want you to note third that the gospel has the power to influence. Read with me verse 7, which states, Just as you learned it, the grace of God and truth from the previous verse. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. There are many causes that insist on service, but very few causes that inspire service. An employer expects allegiance for paying an employee's salary. Some organizations will offer benefits to those who will pledge devotion. Other groups, even some religions, will coerce obedience through authority and through force. But a distinguishing mark of the gospel is that unlike so many movements that must compel and even demand obedience and service, God's truth inspires or provokes allegiance and effort. The gospel is extraordinary. Extraordinary because it motivates service and sacrifice, not out of obligation, but out of appreciation. The difference between the two is notable. Because instead of saying, I have to, we say, I get to. When we're laboring intensely at work, instead of saying, I have to serve my boss, my coworkers, and my clients, 
We say, I get the opportunity to serve my Lord by serving others. When we're fighting the thorns and thistles of our yards, instead of saying, I have to struggle against the Lord's creation, we get to say, I get to experience the Lord's creation. When trials seem to fill our lives, instead of saying, I have to suffer because of God, we get to say, I get to be sanctified by God. This is the power of the gospel, changing the perspective of people so that they willfully give up what they want in order to obtain what the Lord has. This is who the man Epaphras was, the very man mentioned in our text. How do we know the character of this man? How do we know that he was so influenced by the gospel that he would willingly devote himself to the cause of Christ? The answer lies in this phrase, fellow servant. Literally, those words translate fellow slave. In all of scripture, nobody uses that word slave more than the apostle Paul. And more than using it as a mere description of his relationships, both to Christ and to others, this term becomes an identification for who he is. But despite its repeated Reliant, his repeated reliance on this word and this picture that he tries to portray, only twice does he use the phrase fellow slave. He uses slave or servant a bunch of times throughout his writings, but only twice does he call somebody a fellow slave. Here in our text, and also later in the same book in Colossians 4 7, when he refers to Tychicus. I am convinced that the theology of the apostles is built on the framework, this framework, being a slave to Christ. Because whenever this word is mentioned in scripture, it is done so intentionally in order to convey both a person's identity and a person's intent. Three times Paul introduces himself as a servant or a slave to Christ. Romans chapter 1 Philippians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 1. In the same way, Peter does that as well in the very opening statement of his book. James also starts in 1.1, introducing himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. It's probably worth noting at this point that something about slavery, specifically about slavery to Christ. It does not change the value of a human being. Many will argue against the Bible because it doesn't condemn slavery. But we must remember it never commends it either. The Bible is silent, simply using the circumstances of the day in which slavery was prevalent to make a point. And the point it makes here is that it reveals that all people are valuable. It doesn't matter if they are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they're slave or master. All people have value. And all people may freely receive the grace of God. To be a slave of Christ then doesn't make you less of a person. In one sense, we could say it makes you more of a person. Because it means we're accepting his sufficiency in areas that we're insufficient in, namely our own righteousness. Once again, that's the power of the gospel in the lives of believers. It drives people to sacrifice them, their, themselves as a result of the sacrifice of their Savior. Paul, Peter, and James 
who all identify themselves as slaves to Christ, are evidence of this power because they respond to the service and sacrifice of their Savior by becoming slaves to him. James doesn't identify himself as a half-brother of Christ. Peter never mentions that he was personally mentored by Christ or that he was even present at the transfiguration. Nor is Paul one who mentioned his reception of communication and commission from Christ. Instead, they all identify themselves as slaves to Christ because that's all that matters to them. A slave was their identity. Like any slave of that time frame who were identified completely by their master, this is who they are. In the community of that time, the slaves were never called by their own name. They were called by the name of their master. The level of respect and disrespect they may receive when they go out to run their master's errands depended upon the respect that their master had in the community. Their livelihood is derived from their master. They have nothing of their own except that which their master chooses to give them. Some were kind and generous, giving to their slaves abundantly, but others were misers, giving barely the basics. A slave status at the time was completely dependent upon who the master was. We have little information about Epaphras and what he gave up before Christ. And to even speculate is just that. It's speculation. But all that matters now is that he is a slave of Christ. The most important aspect of who he is is who he is in Christ. And slave is not only a title to identify his identity, it also defines his intent. To call Epaphras a slave was to establish his purpose, his life purpose. Because a slave relinquishes his own will and adopts the will of his master. Which is another way, I guess, we could say that the slave forgoes their identity. A slave of Christ, then, is completely committed to the cause of Christ. Joining with Paul by becoming a servant, by becoming a slave for, the others, for others, for the sake of Christ. As he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We don't even have to guess what this looks like because Paul tells us. He gives an example of himself in 1 Corinthians 9.19 saying that he has become a slave or a servant to all people. The extraordinary aspect of this is that Epaphras was never forced into slavery for Christ. He is technically a bond servant. He is one who has purposefully placed himself into servitude like someone who does so to pay off a debt. Epaphras, by his own volition, offers his life to Christ. Essentially, he sells himself into slavery, giving up everything that he may have ever obtained in life so that he may join Paul in saying, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It is at this point that Epaphras is commissioned for service willing to forsake not only what he had, but what he may have had in the future, all in order to serve Christ. I can't help but look at this text and think of an installation service for a new pastor or of a commissioning service for a young missionary couple. 
In those cases, every individual has renounced his or her allegiance to the world and instead announces publicly allegiance to Christ, allegiance to the one true God, and they commit themselves to that service alone. Acting as his agents then, his agents of authority, the church indicates that it accepts these individuals' offer of servitude. And it authorizes them to go out and to work on behalf of the church and on behalf of God, just like a bondservant that we see in Epaphras. That's the power of the gospel, the power of God's truth. It has the power to influence people to serve God rather than to serve self. Such sacrifice is often conveyed, or such service is often conveyed, as a sacrifice. As though the person had to give up something very dear to him or her and replace it with something that's mediocre at best. But that's not what a slave to Christ is at all. We recognize that people work best when they're doing so in an area that they're most passionate about, that they are most joyful with, and that they are purposed for. If you take any business class today, any business class on organizational culture or on leadership, every professor will say that employees and staff and volunteers function their best, will give all their effort if you connect their purpose with their work. That's biblical. That's what it means to have our spiritual gifts imparted to us from Christ and put them into practice. We don't need the secular world to tell us that because we already know. We serve as God has called us. This is what serving Christ is. And this is why a man like Epaphras would willingly sell himself into slavery for Christ because it allows him to live out his purpose, his calling. Essentially, servanthood is fulfillment of Ephesians 2.10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If at any point you find yourself dissatisfied, disappointed, or discontent with where you are, then perhaps you need to evaluate whether or not you're working in your works or God's works. But I have the audacity to tell you, even if you are content, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're walking in slavery to Christ. You may very much enjoy your current work, your current role, but what joy are you missing by not taking the next step of obedience? I don't remember how it came up, but Monday night at a roundtable discussion about missions, I had shared a little bit about God's work in my life and that how throughout my life in Christ, I was very content where I was. I was enjoying myself. I saw God at work. I saw God using me. I was involved in the right thing, serving for him. But then over the course of time, as different situations happened and took place, I had no choice but to relinquish more control of my life, to give more over to Christ, serving him where I probably wouldn't have served him, do what I probably wouldn't have done. But then as I did that more and allowed him to control more and more, what I began to learn or experience was more joy. It's a concept I have a hard time putting into words. And I don't think you guys will get it until each of us does it more. I can't tell you 
give yourself more to Christ so that you can experience more joy. Because it wasn't until I started being forced into those moments, into that process of having to give more of myself, that I realized what I was missing. I was content right here, but I had no idea that I could be right here and experience the joy that comes from Christ. So how much more content would you be if you placed your life into the position of a bond servant for him? Your greatest experience of joy comes in your greatest experience of service for him as a slave to Christ. Servanthood to God is simply service for God. That's the example that Epaphras provides for us. Look how he is later described in Colossians 4, 12 through 13. There it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a slave to Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. As a slave to Christ, Epaphras' task is to do the works that God has already prepared beforehand for him to do. What are those works? Well, apparently they included teaching the saints, first off. Verse 6 of chapter 1 commends him for teaching truth to the Colossians. In verse 6, it says that they fully understood or they comprehended the grace of God. That word understand means fully, completely. They didn't just get this basic level, but they began to go deeper. So it's not a cursory overview, but they were intimately acquainted with the knowledge of his grace. And then verse 7 tells us that they understood because they learned it from Epaphras. They learned it from him, and that word for learn in that context means that he fully taught it. They fully understood because they fully learned because he fully taught. The indication is that they learned deeply from Epaphras. He didn't just merely teach them the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but he goes deeper. He brings out doctrine and duty and ensures that they understand it. He is committed to giving them the full force of God's word, that they may be a full force for God. Epaphras' duty as a shepherd, as their shepherd, goes even deeper than that. Because not only does he advise them publicly, teach them, but he also appeals for them privately. 4.12, Colossians 4.12, it says that Epaphras is always struggling on their behalf in his prayer that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. If you want to pray for our church body, then pray this. When was the last time you prayed for the spiritual well-being and growth of our church body? How many of us have even prayed this prayer for ourselves? I'll tell you this. Our physical well-being is meaningless if our spiritual well-being isn't meaningful. This is not a flippant prayer by Epaphras. Paul says he struggles in prayer for them. He's fighting for them, desiring that they may fully become slaves so that they may more fully experience satisfaction in him. 
it's not unoften that, not inoften that I'm accused of taking my role as a pastor too seriously. People tell me I'm not responsible for your salvation, for your sanctification. And at the end of the day, they're absolutely right. All of us are really only accountable for ourselves. And yet at the same time, I take the call to guide and direct very seriously. The call to steward you for the glory of God. And the call to steward my life. How many of you as a parent would say, I'll just let my children figure it out? They're responsible for themselves, and so hopefully they can someday make sense of this gospel. Nobody. You're going to do anything and everything in your power to help them get there. You'll be like Paul, giving all of yourself so that they may grow and mature. And then you'll be like Epaphras, expending all of your energy praying for them, calling upon them to be saved. And that's how it should be. Paul commends Epaphras for working hard. And not just in Colossae, it says he's laboring in the nearby towns of Laodicea and Hierapolis. This is the example we have of church leadership, of church eldership, and church pastorship. The gospel influences the lives of leaders to give their lives for Christ by giving it to others. If I ever get to the point that I'm not concerned about your salvation and sanctification, I hope that I have enough wisdom to resign. And if I do not, I hope you will get rid of me. We should always desire to be under leadership who is like Epaphras. Perhaps you want to argue with that premise. Maybe Epaphras simply went above and beyond his call, that he did the works that God had prepared for him, but then did more. Or maybe I'm just simply exaggerating the text. He didn't, and I'm not. And how do I know that? First, because Epaphras prays for their maturity. It's the same thing that Paul says in 128. He says, we proclaim him, Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Epaphras simply has the same goal as Paul. We know that Epaphras is doing God's work, the work of God prepared for him, because his ministry is confirmed by Paul. But another phrase shows this even more. The text calls him a faithful minister. Had he been walking outside the works that God prepared for him, he wouldn't have been faithful. He would have been unfaithful. Look at what he does for the church at Colossae. He is so concerned about them, so concerned about the false teachings that are coming into the church and that they may be infiltrated by that and they may be led astray by that, that he travels all the way to visit Paul in prison. No easy journey. This is a man who will put himself on the line for people. Although it's not written about him, he becomes an example of 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. When Paul writes, this is how one should regard us, as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or faithful. Verse 7 of our text closes with an important distinction. It says Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ for them. 
first and foremost, because he is a slave of Christ. Epaphras is a minister for Christ. All that he does is guided by that. It's guided by his master. He's doing Christ's will, not his own. But then this servitude is expressed by serving the body of Christ. He's expressing his servitude to Christ by serving Christ's body, by serving the church. In John chapter 13, just as Jesus has finished washing the feet of the disciples, he says, beginning in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Do you see what he's done there? Christ has just connected service for him with service for the body. The work of Christ here prevents us from separating service for him from service for others. We cannot serve Christ without serving others. Epaphras stands as an example of the power of the gospel. He falls under its influence, laboring for Christ by laboring for people. He teaches them. He cares for them. He prays for them. Does it not strike you as truly incredible that for centuries the gospel has had the power and has been influencing people to change their lives? That's a testimony to the power of the gospel that it has withstood and continued that same work from the first century onward. Apart from Christ's work, you and I don't even have the power to change our own lives, let alone influence a great transformation in somebody else's life. Yet the grace of God has been involved in this miraculous work since the beginning of creation, influencing people from the very beginning. But if you want to add another level of awe, then consider something else. The truth of God causes people to commit to servanthood, despite knowing what's going to come. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus warns of incoming persecution, saying, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In John 15, 20, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. James warns of trials. Peter speaks of suffering. The way is both narrow and difficult. Therefore, those who submit to Christ will face adversities. But despite knowing all of that, despite being warned, this message has the power to convince people to accept that as a condition of following him. Sharing this truth seems to be the opposite of trying to sell someone on this calling. It does everything to convince people to turn away, saying instead, you don't want this. It will be difficult. You will suffer, and you may even lose your physical life. And yet the effect of God's word, God's gospel, by the work of the Spirit, is to influence them. It causes people to say, no, I do want that. That's the life I want to be part of. It causes people to set aside everything, and follow him, just as it did when Christ called the disciples. The gospel influences people, and if we follow the text, the more it is fully understood, the more it fully influences. Look at the effect it had on Epaphras' life, and let me ask, what influence does the gospel have on 
our lives. To know that, perhaps we need to take a moment and ask, not what has God done for me, but what am I doing for God? Two cautions are needed with that question, though. First, such an examination requires a soft heart, willing to confront ourselves, because the question is not, what have I done for myself using the name of Christ? The question is, what have I genuinely done for him? Second, we must be cautious about looking into busyness. The secular world has created this concept that busyness equals importance. In the Christian world, we bought into the lie that busyness equals godliness. Rarely is that true. In fact, frequently it is the opposite because it means a person is frequently neglecting the habits of grace. A busy person may be involved in necessary endeavors or even helpful endeavors, serving here and there, doing this and that, but at what cost of neglecting personal holiness? A friend shared with me this week about what was going on in her life. This year had been quite the struggle, and so I was curious to hear what she had to say. And she said currently she's just struggling with busyness, and busyness and good things. She had classes and studies. She was involved in chapel and trying to do her devotions and discipleship. And she shared about neglecting the disciplines of grace in her own life during the week. And then when it came to Sunday, she was struggling to worship. And then she had this one realization, and this is God's work in her life right now, that by neglecting her time in the word, by neglecting her time in prayer and so on, this relationship aspect of being with Christ, she hadn't prepared her heart for Sundays. And she wasn't ready to worship God on Sunday. If we're too busy to walk with God during the week, we're not ready to worship God at the beginning of the week. Once again, this is the power of the gospel. It causes us to evaluate our priorities, establish our principles, and eradicate our personhood. Are you willing to sacrifice your intent for the sake of Christ's intent? Let's pray. Father God, indeed, your, your truth is quite extraordinary. There is no other word that has the power of your word. There is no other word that can influence people and cause them to change their lives, to change their direction. And it is a testimony to your power because it comes not just because of your word, but because you are the all-powerful, almighty God. Father, we are overwhelmed to see that at work. We're overwhelmed to hear the stories and hear the testimonies. Father, we're overwhelmed to see that in our own lives, to see the effect that your truth has on our hearts, that indeed it does cause a heart transformation. Father, I pray that in being overwhelmed by that, it would cause us to draw near to you, Father, soften our hearts. Help us to examine our lives, to examine our priorities and our purposes. Father, bring us into alignment with your will, that we may be found faithful slaves to your son, Jesus Christ. 
Father, as you've called upon us to do just that, Lord, give us the heart and desire that we need for that. We give you praise because we know this is a work that you're capable of doing. This is a work that your word can influence in our lives as well. Father, help us to discipline our lives, that we may be willing to develop our habits of grace so that we may have ourselves inclined to you. And we just commit ourselves to you today, convicted by you, convinced by you, knowing that indeed you are God of all. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.